What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I'm your host, JT. Back at you guys with another episode of JT Sports Live. Got reactions to the initial college football playoff rankings. Also got some thoughts on a couple of trades that happened throughout the NFL trade deadline. Chase Young to the 49ers, Montez Sweat to the Chicago Bears. Also going to get into a couple of college football week 10 and NFL week 9 previews. Glad that you guys can join me. Happy Halloween. Hope you guys have a safe night wherever you're watching. If you haven't already, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. Remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available on all podcasting platforms. Wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, leave us with a five-star review and share the podcast with your friends, family members, and acquaintances. It's the best way to support the channel. If you want to show support, the best way to do so is by giving the JT Sports Podcast a five-star review. All you got to do is type in the JT Sports Podcast on any podcasting platform and it will pop up. Or you can go down to the description down below and there will be the link to the Apple and Spotify versions of the podcast. Let's see if we can fix the camera real quick. There we go. All right. So I'm going to start off with my college football playoff rankings. For the first time ever, I can say with a lot of confidence that I believe the college football playoff committee finally got it right with their initial playoff rankings. They got Ohio State at number one. I don't think there should be any controversy with that because they gave a pretty good explanation for why they put the Buckeyes at number one. They got the the best resume. They played the toughest schedule in college football up to this point. They have impressive wins over Penn State, Notre Dame on the road, and they just recently beat Wisconsin. Georgia comes in at number two. Georgia doesn't have the same amount of quality wins that Ohio State has. Same thing with Michigan. FSU, you probably can make the argument that they should be number two over Georgia and they should be ranked above Michigan because if the committee is valuing strength of schedule and strength of wins, Florida State, they have some pretty good wins also. They beat LSU the first game of this season. They also got a really nice win over Duke. I think that they probably could be bumped up a little bit higher. I don't really have too many complaints about the first college football playoff rankings of this year Ohio State they may not be the best team in college football right right now based on performance Kyle McCord obviously really isn't that great but they got a great defense they got Marvin Harrison Jr. Marzarati Marv but this isn't about who's the most talented this is about who has played the toughest schedule and who has the more impressive wins. And right now, no team in college football has a better resume than what Ohio State has. What was really interesting was that Oregon is in at number six. And I think that Oregon possibly is going to find a way to get into the college football playoffs if they're able to win out. I think 
along with Kurt Herbstreit, who also reiterated this sentiment that Oregon is the scariest team in college football at this moment. They're playing really good defense. Their offense has been lights out all year long. I don't think Washington wants to see Oregon in a rematch in the Pac-12 championship game because I think that that game, with the way that the Huskies have played the last two weeks against Arizona State and Stanford, it will be incredibly one-sided. Oklahoma... They only fell to number nine despite having an upset loss to TCU. So they still control their own destiny. If they're able to win out, let's say they beat Texas again in a rematch in the Big 12 championship game, then you're going to have a really compelling argument for Oklahoma being in the college football playoffs. But what really has me really excited about the rest of this season and how the playoffs are going to shape up is what if Texas only has one loss? They will have a win against Alabama on the road in Tuscaloosa. They'll have an impressive win over Kansas State. And let's just assume they beat Oklahoma in a rematch in the Big 12 championship game. Which one loss team do you guys think has the best chance at jumping over a potential fourth seed team that's unbeaten? FSU, they don't really have that strong of a schedule. For the remainder of this year, their best games that they probably have left is probably Louisville and Miami. So let's say Texas wins out or Alabama wins out. Could there be a possibility where a team like maybe, you know, Alabama could jump over FSU? Or maybe Michigan with one loss or a one loss Ohio State team gets left out? I really want to know. What's going to happen if we have a situation where this is a one-loss team that has a better resume and a better strength of schedule versus a team that's undefeated but doesn't have the same quality of schedule or the same quality of wins? Because this year's committee, because it changes every single year, really values playing good teams and having quality wins. That's why Ohio State is number one. If we're doing this based on a talent standpoint, we probably – will have Georgia or Michigan at either number one or number two, and then Ohio State probably will be three or four, but this is based on resume. And right now, no team in college football has a better resume than what the Buckeyes have. Ohio State, they beat Notre Dame on the road in South Bend. People are trying to knock Notre Dame like Notre Dame is an overrated team. Notre Dame is a really good football team. They got a win over Duke. They got a win over USC. So let's not try to make it seem like wins over Notre Dame aren't impressive just because of the narrative that gets pushed around about Notre Dame being overrated every single year. And then they beat Penn State by a pretty comfortable margin. And Penn State is still a top team, a top 10 team in my eyes. So there's just no way that I felt the committee could not put Ohio State at number one. I've been screaming on Instagram and TikTok for the last two weeks that Ohio State deserves to be ranked number one in the nation. You should be rewarded for scheduling tough out-of-conference opponents. You can't be considered the best team in college football if you're Michigan. For one, if you're currently accused of cheating. And two, how can you claim you're the best if you haven't played none of the best teams? That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
right now. Ohio State deserves to be ranked where they are right now. I don't have any problems with the committee's playoff rankings. A lot of this is going to get sorted out over the next couple of weeks. We're about to find out truthfully how good Michigan is when they play Penn State and then eventually play Ohio State at the end of November. But give me your thoughts on the initial college football playoff rankings. Do you think that the committee got it right? Do you think they got it wrong? Who do you think was too high? Who do you think was too low? Now I got some really interesting thoughts on the trade deadline. We had a good amount of movement. No big superstar names were moved, but we had a couple of guys who have been in rumblings to get traded dating back to the offseason. And the Washington Commanders shipped out both of their two best pass rushers in Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Montez Sweat got traded to the Chicago Bears in exchange for a 2024 second round pick. Now, many people are looking at this move by the Chicago Bears as a bad trade. And I don't lie on that side of the fence when it comes to this move. I felt like the Chicago Bears went ahead and did what they needed to do to improve that god-awful pass rush. Why do people keep saying that Montez Sweat is going to be a free agent so the Bears pretty much just rolled the dice on a guy who they could have gotten free agency? There is no guarantee that Montez Sweat was going to sign with Chicago in free agency. There's a team that could have offered more money than Chicago, even though they have the most cap space in the NFL in 2024. You don't know if Montez Sweat would have wanted to play for the Chicago Bears. And I don't think giving up a second round pick is too bad for a guy who I think is a tier two pass rusher in this league. Montez Sweat, he is somebody who's going to consistently give you around eight to nine sacks a year. Plus, the Bears right now, they have the worst pass rush in the NFL. They're 32nd in the league in sacks per game, so they desperately need help in that department. And there's nothing wrong with going ahead and giving up a second-round pick for a proven guy. The Rams have had this philosophy for the last couple of years. Yes, Ryan Poles made a massive swing and miss when he traded for Chase Claypool, and he got fleeced by the Pittsburgh Steelers, but... You can't let one bad trade affect you for from making future decisions that can improve your football team. I think that Montez Sweat makes the Chicago Bears defense better today than what it was prior to this trade. And for the people that are saying, well, it was no use trading for Montez Sweat when the team already sucks, they ain't going to be winning for nothing, this trade isn't about making the Bears better now. This is about making Chicago better for the foreseeable future. They have tons of money to spend. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to easily sign Montez Sweat. I don't think he's going to get the franchise tag. I don't think negotiations should be all that difficult. Why are people stuck in this mindset that just because you're a bad team, you shouldn't try to improve for the future during the season? That makes absolutely no sense to me. That's like saying that, okay, since the season is basically over for us, we shouldn't try to trade for any players that can make us better for the future. That's what the Chicago Bears did. I don't get why... Ryan Poles is getting so much flack over this decision. The Bears' pass rush has been non-existent for all this season, and they didn't have a pass rush last year. So this was a trade that they needed to make. The pass rush got better. The defense got better. What's the holdup? Jalen Johnson, he 
wanted to get paid. He hasn't gotten an extension yet, despite him having a career year. I think he's going to get his extension in due time. But getting Montez Sweat, you can't say that this defense doesn't get better because of this. There was no guarantee that this dude was going to be available and wanting to sign with you in free agency. There's going to be a pretty big market for a guy like Montez Sweat, and pass rushers are pretty hard to come by. You being the Chicago Bears, you either go ahead and trade for a guy who's proven, who you know is consistently going to give you around eight, nine sacks a season versus trying to trade and maybe draft somebody high in the first round in the 2024 NFL draft who is unproven. You see, the thing about these prospects in the NFL draft is that we only can judge them based on what they put on film in college and their potential. And a lot of times, most guys in the first round end up being bust than they do end up being superstars. Jared Verse, there's also a really good pass rusher for UCLA, number 15, who are slated to be top 10 picks in next year's draft. But there's no guarantee that if you're Chicago, any of those guys are going to be game changers for you. Trading for Montez Sweat, I think was a pretty good decision by the Chicago Bears. Calling this trade stupid. I think it's a little bit of an overreaction. Ryan Poles, he missed with Chase Claypool. I don't think he's going to be missing with Montez Sweat, a guy who ever since his rookie season has consistently given you six, seven sacks a year. And he probably could have had a lot more if you didn't have the Ron Payne and Jonathan Allen who are also taking away sacks from him. You're getting somebody who can be a number one pass rusher for you, who can consistently get pressure on the quarterback, and a good amount of people say that Montez Sweat is better than Chase Young. So if you're able to get a guy like Montez Sweat that's like a tier two pass rusher in the same tier as a guy like Brian Burns, I think that's a steal. There's no guarantee that you would have been able to hit on whichever pass rusher you wanted to draft in the second round. I'd rather trade for the proven commodity than go ahead and waste draft capital on an unproven commodity. The Rams have had this philosophy for the last couple of years prior to 2023. You know the meme that used to go viral on social media when it came to the LA Rams saying F those picks. F those picks if you're the Chicago Bears. If you can get Montez Sweat for a second round pick, you go ahead and do so. It shouldn't be hard to get this guy locked up to a long-term deal when you have the most cap space in the NFL going into 2024. I'm not understanding why people are calling this a bad trade and a bad move by Ryan Poles. You needed to improve the pass rush, and that's what you did. Yeah, you probably still aren't going to be good this year, but this trade isn't about trying to save this season. It's about building for the future. What's wrong with a team wanting to build for the future? For the people who are criticizing this trade, I got a question for you. Did you have this same energy Last year, when the Jacksonville Jaguars traded for Calvin Ridley, who couldn't even play a single game last year due to him being suspended all last year due to a gambling violation that he had got suspended for, people were praising the Calvin Ridley trade. So what's the difference between the Jags getting Calvin Ridley, who couldn't play last year, versus the Chicago Bears getting Montez Sweat? Is Montez Sweat going to make the Bears a playoff team out of nowhere this year? No, he's not. But this is one of those moves that you make to make you a better franchise for next season. And if Matt Eberflus isn't the head coach, it doesn't really matter. 
You're still going to have a really productive pass rusher that you were able to acquire without having to give up a first round pick. I think that this was a really good trade by Ryan Poles and the Chicago Bears. And if you're a Bears fan, I think you should be really happy with this addition. Anytime I have a issue that I deal with in life, I like to watch football. Some people like to go shopping. The 49ers, anytime they have any issues, they just go ahead and they get more defensive linemen. And the rich get richer, as they say. Somehow, someway, the 49ers were able to pull a masterclass robbery for Chase Young. Chase Young is one of the best young pass rushers in this league. I know that his career has been a little bit on the downside ever since he won Defensive Rookie of the Year his first season, but that was due to injuries. This season, Chase Young is on pace to have a career year. He already has five sacks. He has 18 quarterback pressures. The 49ers, their defensive line has kind of underperformed. You bring in Chase Young, you pair him up with Nick Bolsa on the opposite side, Arik Armstead, Javon Hargrave. This arguably is the most talented defensive line in the whole entire National Football League. At the end of the day, football is a game that's won and lost in the trenches. If you can't win up front, if you can't get pressure on, on the opposing team's quarterback, you're not going to have a lot of success in this league. Getting Chase Young solidifies this 49ers defensive line as the best in the NFL right now. Steve Wilkes, he's been under fire as of late for his recent performance as the DC for the 49ers. So the 49ers getting Chase Young should help Steve Wilkes be able to turn things around coming off their bye. Chase Young, in my opinion, probably could have been traded for a second round pick. Maybe a late first round pick because this is somebody who was a top two selection when he got drafted years ago. He still has tons of potential and tons of upside that's yet to be reached. He's been held back due to injuries the last, what, year and a half to two years. You give him to Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch and the 49ers organization that knows how to get the best out of players on the defensive line. Chase Young and Nick Bosa, the 49ers potentially could have two all-pro pass rushers at the edge position. And then you still have Arik Armstead. You got Javon Hargrave, who you paid big money to in free agency last offseason. The 49ers right now, they're 5-3, and three, and their season is kind of starting to go a little bit left. Making a move like this definitely could be what San Francisco needs to get their season moving back in the right direction when they come off their bye. Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to sign Chase Young to a long-term deal. You still do have Brock Purdy on a really cheap rookie contract, which gives you leeway to be able to make moves like this and possibly give Chase Young a long-term extension because with the way Chase Young has played, he probably is going to be paid as a top five, top seven pass rusher in the league. He's on pace to have a career year. He's probably going to have double-digit sacks. He most likely is going to be a pro bowler now that he's going to be playing with the 49ers and he's going to have way more eyes and attention on him. This was a ultimate masterclass swindling by John Lynch in the 49ers front office getting Chase Young for only a third round selection. I don't know what the hell the Washington Commanders got going on. Allegedly, the new ownership had a say in getting Montez when Chase Young traded. 
I didn't think that this was a good move on Washington's behalf. But you know what they say, one man's misfortune can lead to another man's opportunity. And for the 49ers, getting Chase Young now makes this team already scarier than what it already was. And once this offense starts to get back rolling like how it was when they started out the season hot, there's no reason why you can't say that the 49ers still can't be viewed as legitimate favorites to make it out of the NFC. With getting Chase Young, the 49ers have a defensive line that pretty much can be just as good as Philadelphia's or Dallas. Chase Young, I'm a really big fan of his. I think that this was a very good trade by the 49ers, and I think that they won the trade deadline with this acquisition, getting a young player in Chase Young that you can pair up on an already stout and stacked defensive line. With the injury to Kirk Cousins, we knew that if the Minnesota Vikings planned on still trying to turn their season around and remain in the playoff conversation they were going to have to make a move at quarterback and they traded for Joshua Dobbs and this wasn't really a surprise to me I told a friend of mine the other night that the Vikings most likely were going to trade for Joshua Dobbs Kirk Cousins is out for the season and you're going to be starting Jaron Hain against the Atlanta Falcons now we don't know what the expect out of Jaron Hall he's a rookie out of BYU he's a mid-round selection having a guy like Joshua Dobbs I definitely think is good enough to keep the Minnesota Vikings in that playoff conversation they still got a pretty good team when Justin Jefferson comes back fully healthy Joshua Dobbs could be throwing to him Jordan Addison TJ Hawkinson and plus he has way more mobility than Kirk Cousins one thing that kind of has hurt Kirk Cousins this year and the reason why he's been hit so much is because he can't move that well. Joshua Dobbs is pretty athletic. He had 258 rushing yards and three touchdowns on the ground with the Arizona Cardinals. And before he got traded, news broke last night that he was going to get benched in favor of rookie quarterback Clayton Toon until Kyler Murray is ready to play within the next week or so. And it kind of made me wonder, all right, you're benching Joshua Dobbs when he hasn't played bad. He's played to the level that you expect for a guy like him who's replacing or filling in as just a short-term starter at that position. The Minnesota Vikings, this is a team that they have the opportunity to just go ahead, wave the whack flag, and just go ahead and try to tank for Kayla Williams. But Kevin O'Connell in that organization – I have a lot of respect for them due to the fact that they're not giving up on the season. They say that, you know, we came way too far. We've turned our season around despite getting out to a slow start. We're four and four, and we still got a great opportunity to make it into the playoffs. And even if the Minnesota Vikings don't make a deep playoff run, nobody should be playing to lose. I hate how people just want to make everything about tanking nowadays. Like, there were people saying that the Vikings should have traded Daniil Hunter. Like, no. I'm not a believer in tanking if you're not in a position to tank. The Vikings don't need to tank. They already have a playoff caliber roster. There's no need to tank unless you just feel Kayla Williams just is that good and you feel like he can make you go from a playoff contender to a Super Bowl contender as soon as you draft them. I was never on board with the whole Minnesota tank for Caleb Williams train. Now, if the Minnesota Vikings end up not being that great, 
with the injury, the Kirk Cousins sidelining him for the rest of this season, and they still find a way to get Drake May or Caleb Williams, then I can respect that. Because at least you're trying. You're not trying to tank for those guys. You're not trying to be bad on purpose. You're still trying to win games. It's just that your team just ain't that great. I can respect that. I can respect if Minnesota isn't good due to Kirk Cousins missing time with that injury. But I can't respect the team that just wants to mail it in during the middle way point of the season when we still have two months left of football to play that just wants to give up and try to tank for a quarterback. Joshua Dobbs, he was really solid for Arizona. As a matter of fact, he surprised a lot of people. Arizona was not expected to be a good team, and their offense, when you look at it from a talent standpoint, it's one of the least talented offenses in the National Football League. So Joshua Dobbs, him getting traded to Minnesota, he's getting put in a better situation. I'm pretty confident that Minnesota isn't going to make Joshua Dobbs their long-term solution at quarterback. This is just a band-aid until you can find who's going to be your long-term answer at that position once this season concludes. But right now, if you're looking for somebody who can keep you afloat, Joshua Dobbs is that dude. Of course, there were other alternatives out there, other QBs who you probably could have went after. Uh, Jameis Winston probably could have been a nice addition. But Joshua Dobbs is somebody that you're only getting for what, a six-round pick? That's a steal. You got somebody who can still keep your season afloat. When Joshua Dobbs came in last season for the Tennessee Titans, he damn near led them to the division championship game. It's just that the Jaguars just had so much more talent and the Tennessee Titans were just so banged up. The fact that Tennessee started this guy late last season tells you how solid this dude is as a potential placeholder at your QB spot until you can get a long-term answer there. I think that Joshua Dobbs is a really good bridge gap quarterback until you can find your long-term answer there. And if you need somebody who can keep you afloat with the talent that they have around him and the fact that Kevin O'Connell is an offensive-minded coach, Joshua Dobbs, if the Jaron Hall experiment doesn't work out, he can come in and win games for Minnesota. Their division is not good. Outside of the Detroit Lions, you should be able to beat the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears with Joshua Dobbs at the helm at QB. So you got two more additional wins. And with the fact that the NFC is lacking in elite star power at the quarterback spot, I think that this trade is a really good move for Minnesota. Minnesota is going to still be able to hang around with the best teams in the league just because that they got so great of a, you know, skill position with the talent that they got at wide out and tied in with TJ Hawkinson that it's kind of hard for Joshua Dobbs to play worse than what he did in Arizona, which was a less desirable situation. I really like this trade, getting Joshua Dobbs I kind of forecasted this the other night. I was telling people on Instagram, don't be surprised if you see Joshua Dobbs get traded to Minnesota. And then news broke that he got benched. And with him getting benched, many people were shocked by it. But it only could have meant one thing. They were looking at trading him. And I felt like this was the plan with Joshua Dobbs the whole entire time when they signed him. We knew that Kyler Murray was going to come back at some point this season. So either when Kyler Murray comes back, they were going to make Joshua Dobbs their long-term backup, or when he got healthy enough to start over Joshua Dobbs, they were going to try to flip him for a pick. I kind of thought that 
you might have been able to get a fifth-round pick for Joshua Dobbs. Anytime you can have a serviceable backup and somebody who can come in and just keep you in games, I think that dude is worth a fifth-round selection. Backup quarterbacks, I think, are really underrated. Guys like Joshua Dobbs don't grow on trees. It's hard to have a competent backup that you can trust when your star quarterback goes down. Ask the New York Jets how they're feeling with Aaron Rodgers being injured with that Achilles injury, and they got to throw Zach Wilson out there. Joshua Dobbs may be the best bridge quarterback in the National Football League right now. And if we were to rank Joshua Dobbs amongst the other 31 starting QBs in the league right now, I don't think he finishes in the bottom three. I'll take Joshua Dobbs easily over Daniel Jones, Jimmy Garoppolo, Desmond Ritter, and hell, I'll even take him over Zach Wilson. Kudos to the Minnesota Vikings for trading for Joshua Dobbs. Before we get into some college football previews and breakdowns if you haven't already leave a like subscribe to the channel we go live monday through wednesday sometimes thursday after thursday night football remember that we're not just a youtube channel every episode of the podcast is available on all audio platforms apple google spotify amazon wherever you get your podcast from the jt sports podcast is available All right, now, we got Mizzou going on the road to Athens to take on Georgia. This game has a similar feeling to me that Tennessee had last year when they had to take on Georgia. Missouri, they have been the biggest surprise in the SEC so far this season. They currently are 7-1, and if they win this game, they put themselves in the driver's seat to do something that they haven't done in a long time, and that's make it to the SEC championship game. The last time Missouri appeared in the SEC conference championship game, I was in elementary school or sixth grade, I believe. And this was when they were fairly new to the SEC. This is when they were transitioning from the Big 12 into this conference, and they were fairly good their second year in the SEC. So this is the best Missouri team that we've seen in damn near a decade. Brady Cook has been one of the best quarterbacks in this conference this year. He has Luther Burden and tons of good receivers. This is one of the better offenses in this conference as well. And they got a really good coaching staff. You look at Georgia, though. Georgia is one of those teams that they underplay to competition but at the same time, anytime they go up against some of the best teams in college football or they get put in big game situations where they need to come in and have a good performance and they need to win, Kirby Smart always has the dogs ready to play. It's really weird how Georgia can struggle against Vanderbilt and then all of a sudden flip the switch and beat the shit out of Florida. Georgia just is one of those teams that despite what injuries they may have, not having Brock Bowers. They're just one of those teams that they just find ways to dominate. And that's just to put it simply. And going against Missouri, Missouri's only loss occurred against LSU. They got some really impressive victories. They beat Kentucky pretty handily by multiple possessions. They blew out South Carolina. They got a really good win against Kansas State early this season, and Kansas State is starting to play some of their best football. This is the best team that Georgia has played up to this point. 
And last week was just a little bit of a precursor because this is now the meat and bones of Georgia's schedule. What Georgia does from this game until the SEC championship is going to define if Georgia is not only going to be able to make it back to the college football playoffs, but if they're going to be able to three-peat. This is a Missouri team that you can overlook. This is an offense that's more than capable of being able to put points up on Georgia's defense. Georgia's defense, I'm still not really all that sold on it. Yeah, they did shut down Georgia. They did shut down Florida last week, but Florida doesn't have nowhere near the talent that Missouri has at wide receiver. Luther Burden, damn near it, has been just as good as what Marvin Harrison has been. I think that Georgia's secondary could be in for a little bit of a tough game. This is a Missouri team that's pretty balanced. They play complimentary football. They can run the football. They can throw the football effectively. My question is, can Brady Cook not have any costly turnovers in this game? Missouri, they got the best red zone offense in the nation. Georgia's red zone defense is 89th. Missouri, I think that they can move the ball effectively on Georgia's defense. My question is, can Missouri's defense get enough key stops to be able to give Georgia their first loss of the season? You see, when Tennessee was going up against Georgia, many of us thought that Tennessee could have pulled off the upset. Because Tennessee had a high-powered offense, and we thought that Tennessee's offense matched up pretty well against Georgia's defense and that simply wasn't the case Georgia just was the better team than Tennessee on all phases especially up front but Georgia's defensive line this season hasn't been good as what it has been in the past two years and of course I know you Georgia fans are going to get a little upset with that but you got to understand something that your last two defensive lines were historically great. You don't have three or four guys on the defensive line this year that are going to be potential first-round picks in next year's draft. I do think that Missouri has a shot to be able to give Georgia a legitimate challenge in this game. They're not a triple, they're not a double-digit or you know, three-touchdown underdog. They're only a 15-and-a-half-point favorite. And they were a 14-point favorite against Florida last week. Now, I was wrong. I thought that Florida could have made that game a little bit more competitive. But Florida just had too much youth, and they just weren't that great. From a talent standpoint, Missouri, with what they have at receiver and Luther Burden, and the fact that Brady Cook has been playing at a really high level this year, I definitely think that Georgia is probably going to get tested in a way that we haven't seen this team tested since Auburn. And although this team for some odd reason, gets up anytime they play the best teams on their schedule. Let's not make it seem like this is a team that just has no weaknesses. We saw this team look vulnerable when they almost lost to Auburn, and they look vulnerable when they were going up against Vanderbilt. And I'm just wondering, when are we finally going to be able to see a SEC team like Missouri that's ranked and is one of the best teams on Georgia's schedule actually be able to challenge Georgia? Now, it's difficult seeing Missouri winning this game because they got to do it in Athens, and Athens is a really tough place to play at. And like we saw last year with Tennessee, Tennessee, they got rattled really early in that game. After that first quarter, Tennessee was shook. If you're Missouri, you can't be shook in this game. You got to be able to find a way to keep this game from getting out of reach. If 
Georgia gets up on you 21 to 3 in the second quarter, I think it's over. You got to be able to find a way to keep Georgia from just going ballistic on you. And I definitely think that Missouri has multiple different ways that they can attack you. They got a dual threat quarterback in Brady Cook, and you got plenty of good wide receivers that can stretch the field on a Georgia secondary that has been kind of questionable. Bulldogs fans, don't take Missouri likely, all right? Missouri isn't Kentucky. They're not Florida. Both of those teams are one-dimensional on offense in a sense. Even though Graham Mertz has been playing at a solid level, Florida just doesn't have the talent at wide receiver this season that Missouri has. Missouri also has a pretty solid offensive line. When you got a team like Missouri that can play complementary football, that can beat you running the football or throwing the football, I think that Georgia's defense could be in a little bit of trouble. The last time Georgia played an offense that was able to play a complimentary style game was Auburn. And we didn't really expect that game to be as close as what it was. Now, I'm still going to roll with Georgia to get the win just because when I go back and I look at that LSU game, Missouri's defense was unable to stop Jaden Daniels. And I don't really see this defense getting too many stops against Georgia, especially when they got to play this game on the road in Athens. I do think that this game potentially could be a little close for a couple of quarters, but eventually I think that Georgia's going to be able to pull away. Although I think that Georgia's defense has some weaknesses in it, I still think that their offense probably should be able to have their way with the Tigers in this game. When LSU played Missouri, it was instant offense anytime they wanted to throw the football downfield. And I don't know if Missouri's offense is going to be able to keep up with Georgia's offense. And the thing with Georgia is that although their defense this season hasn't been good as it has been the past two years, you still trust Georgia's defense to get a few more stops in this game compared to Missouri's defense. I don't think that Missouri's defense can get the big stops when it matters late in the fourth quarter like Georgia potentially has the ability to do. So give me the Bulldogs to win this game. 38-24 is my final score prediction for this matchup. We got Oklahoma taking on Oklahoma State. You know, it's funny because ever since Oklahoma beat Texas, this team has played some of their worst football of the whole entire season. They almost lost to the Gus Bus. Then they got upset by Kansas last week. And it kind of feels like Oklahoma coming into this season only had one goal, and that was to beat Texas. Texas beating them was like their Super Bowl because ever since then, this has not been the same football team. And they're lucky that they only have one loss instead of two losses. With the way that that UCF game could have went, they could have easily had lost that game too. And meanwhile, you have an Oklahoma State team that is scorching hot right now. All right, you got to remember that early in the season, they got blown out by South Alabama. Things were not looking good down there in Stillwater. There were people who were starting to question if it was time to move on from Mike Gundy. And Mike Gundy came out and he made, at the time, some controversial statements when he said that there's nothing wrong with this team. And, you know, a lot of people kind of looked at him like he was crazy. But looking at that quote and those comments a couple of weeks later, he was right. Now, their quarterback position, Alex Bowman, I'm not really high on him. I definitely think the strength of Oklahoma State's offense is running back 
Ollie Gold Gordon, who's been going off this year. He has 1,087 rushing yards. He's averaging over seven yards per carry, nearly eight yards per carry. And anytime he touches the football, he's instant offense. Oklahoma State's offensive line has also been playing at the best level that they've have been in the last couple of years. Remember that Oklahoma State's offensive line has been a huge weakness for the last couple of years. The level that this old line has played at over the last month or so has been the best play that Oklahoma State's gotten out of their offensive line in years. And, and your wide receivers are pretty solid too. It's just that your quarterback, I don't think Alex Bowman if you ask him to have to win the game with his arm, is going to be able to pull it off against a Brent Venables coach defense. And I know that Brent Venables defense hasn't really been anything to write home about. His defense got exposed by Kansas, but this is still a defense that's more than capable of being able to produce turnovers. Oklahoma State's defense, on the other hand, I, I have concerns about this. If this game ends up being a shootout, I think that it kind of favors Oklahoma State. But if this is a low-scoring, one-possession game, I kind of would be a little surprised because the way Oklahoma State has won games, all their games have kind of been shootouts. When they beat Kansas State, that game was a shootout. When they beat Kansas, that game was a shootout. And their games normally come down to the wire. They don't really have too many games where anytime they're facing any of the better teams in the Big 12 where they just steamrolled them. Oklahoma... Their offense, Jeff Levy is somebody who's gotten called out by a lot of Sooner fans. A lot of Sooner fans haven't been satisfied with what they've been getting out of the play calling. Dylan Gabriel kind of can be a little erratic at times. And sometimes Oklahoma's offense can be a little bit streaky like we saw last week against Kansas. Oklahoma hasn't been playing their best football. And with this being a rivalry game, look. We know that Oklahoma is more talented than Oklahoma State. Nobody's going to deny that. But one thing about rivalry games that I think people tend to overlook sometimes is that it doesn't matter who's the better team, who's more talented, who has more five and four stars. It doesn't matter what your record are. One thing that you got to know about these rivalry games is that you got to throw everything out the window and just play football. Because at the end of the day, Oklahoma, even though they're the more talented team than Oklahoma State, Oklahoma is only a six-point favorite to a team that lost to South Alabama nearly a month ago. So that should tell you everything that you need to know about how this game potentially can go. And Oklahoma, ever since they beat the Longhorns, they haven't been able to blow teams out. When you look at that game against Kansas, they were a 10-point favorite heading into that game. They were a double-digit favorite against UCF. If they haven't been able to blow out UCF and Kansas, what makes you think that they're going to be able to blow out Oklahoma State in this rivalry game, especially with it being on the road? And where do the most upsets occur in college football? Anytime you have a team that's a road favorite going on the road, this is where we see a lot of upsets occur. And think about this, right? Imagine Oklahoma State winning this game. That pretty much would be the end of Oklahoma's playoff hopes. 
Oklahoma's playoff hopes right now are on life support because they haven't looked like the same dominant team that we saw the first couple of weeks this season when they were hanging 70 on Arkansas State and when they pretty much shut down a really good SMU team that most likely is going to end up winning the American this year. For Oklahoma, this is a really big prove-it game for them because a loss right here pretty much could derail a lot of things that they had going this year. Now with a loss, their path to the Big 12 championship game is kind of out of their hands. And without a doubt, they will be eliminated from college football playoff contention. So there's a lot at stake in this game. And for Oklahoma State, you're trying to get back to a New Year's Six Bowl game. And I think that this has to be one of Mike Gundy's best coaching jobs because Oklahoma State isn't a talented team. They got some pretty good players at wide receiver and Ollie Gordon is one of the more underrated running backs in college football. One thing about the Pokes is that they always find some hidden gems at the running back position. Jalen Warren, somebody that I covered a lot, who plays for my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers. He was really good for Oklahoma State. Ollie Gordon, I think he's even better than Jalen Warren. Against Kansas, this dude was terrorizing the Jayhawks defense. They did not have any answers for him. And Oklahoma, their defensive line hasn't really played at that high of a level over the last couple of weeks. Kansas has success running the football on this front. So I don't think that Oklahoma's defensive line is as good as what people may think. The team I'm going to take the win, I'm still going to go with Oklahoma. Even though I really was tempted to go with Oklahoma State, I'm picking Oklahoma just because I do think that the quarterback advantage that Oklahoma has is going to be key for them winning this game I I don't think that Brent Venables is going to allow Ollie Gordon to go off like he has been over the last couple of weeks if you're Brent Venables you might as well go ahead put seven eight guys stack the box and force Alex Bowman to beat you Alex Bowman if he ends up beating you I think if you're Brent Venables you're willing to take that to the chin because Alex Bowman hasn't really been that great. He doesn't make the best decision with the football. He overthrows receivers pretty constantly. And the receivers are pretty talented. And with a better quarterback, I probably would pick Oklahoma to win this game. Hell, Spencer Sanders should have stayed. I don't know why Spencer Sanders transferred. If Spencer Sanders was playing for Oklahoma State right now, Oklahoma State probably would be the second or third best team in the Big 12 right now. This defense, I don't think is going to be able to slow down Oklahoma. One thing about Oklahoma is that their defense hasn't been helped out with the fact that their offense has kind of been inefficient at times. Oklahoma State, I don't think they have a defense that you can trust to get a lot of stops in this game. If Oklahoma State's going to win this game, it's going to have to be a shootout. I would be severely surprised if this is a game that ends up being decided by, you know, a low-scoring affair. Give me Oklahoma to win 38 34 is my final score prediction for this game. LSU is looking to win their second consecutive matchup against Alabama. We all remember how this game played out last year at home in Death Valley. Jaden Daniels got a big touchdown run, which pretty much sent the game to overtime, and they pretty much went and won it with that game-winning two-point conversion. This year, though, 
Alabama, they're looking for blood. And I can't recall too many instances where Alabama has lost to the same team in back-to-back years. And you got to remember that winning on the road in Tuscaloosa is really hard to do. Not everybody goes on the road and beats Alabama when they're playing at home. You got to be a damn good team to beat Alabama. They've only lost at home a handful of times. And although you look back at that Texas game, you say, JT, our offense is just as good as Texas. You're right. You got Jaden Daniels, who I believe isn't getting talked about enough in the Heisman conversation. And it's really starting to irk me. Because if you watch LSU this year, like Jaden Daniels has been him. Against Ole Miss, he was doing everything he could to give LSU that win. Unfortunately, despite how good LSU's offense is with all the talent they have at wide receiver and the greatness of Jalen Daniels, or Jaden Daniels, excuse me, they don't have a good defense. And it's funny how LSU, you know, they like to pump their chest about how they're DBU, but this is one of the worst secondaries that LSU has ever had. And that's going to be the biggest deciding factor in determining if LSU can win this game. Alabama has a really good defense, all right? We know what Texas did to this Alabama defense, but it wasn't like Alabama's defense just got shredded by Texas. Alabama's offense was inefficient. And anytime you have a inefficient offense, it puts your defense on the field for more plays than what they should be. Alabama's offense, ever since that performance against Texas, this offense has performed at a way higher level than what it did back then in their loss to Longhorns. Jalen Monroe, he still is inconsistent. He can be shaky at times, but at least he has the ability to hit big plays downfield. And a big question about Alabama coming into this season was how much production were they going to get out of, out of their wide receivers? Jermaine Burton was a major disappointment last season. We knew how talented he was, but we didn't know if he was going to be able to put it all together. Well, he's done that up to this point this season. He's been their number one wide receiver. And then you also have another wide receiver who's starting to make a name for himself in Isaiah Bond. So your wide receiver position, you now have two wide receivers who you can trust to keep drives alive. And Jalen Murrow, just with his athleticism alone, makes him a quarterback that you can't overlook. Jalen Murrow doesn't have to go 27 of 31 against you for four touchdowns and no picks. He's a guy who can complete nine out of 18 passes and still lead Alabama to the win just because he can go for a buck a hundred and two touchdowns with how dynamic of an athlete he is and LSU hasn't shown the ability not just to stop the run but also the ability to generate a consistent pass rush and Alabama's offensive line still hasn't been good this year like it hasn't been for the past three seasons But anytime you're going against a defense that can't get consistent pressure on a quarterback, it gives a guy like Jalen Murrow the potential to have a really big game. Yeah, you do have a cyborg and Harold Perkins who probably is going to have a really big task of trying to contain Jalen Murrow. But anytime you have a guy with this kind of athleticism and you don't have the ability to generate consistent pressure, A guy like Jalen Miro, he can find those running lanes and he can gas you for a 40, 60-yard run. And 
Alabama also has gotten really good play out of their running backs. LSU's inability to really get too many big stops on defense has costed them a lot of games. It costed them against Florida State. It costed them against Ole Miss. Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin in that game, he was praying to God. He was stressing because there was no way he felt that LSU's offense wasn't going to be able to score on that defense. The fact that Ole Miss defense was able to get that stop and seal the victory for them had to be a big surprise to him. LSU offensively, the only way I think they can win this game is if they're able to hang 30 or more on Alabama's offense. Alabama, despite the struggles that they've had early in the season on offense, they've shown the ability that they can pick it up when they need be. If you go back and you watch their recent performance against Tennessee, they were down, what, like 20 to 7 at halftime, and then they came back and scored like 24 unanswered or like 27 unanswered. I don't remember. I think it was either 24 or 27. This is one of the best defenses in college football. Statistically, they don't have a top three defense, but based on the eye test with my 2020 vision, I think Alabama's defense is top three and all of college football. And this is probably the best coaching job that Nick Saban has ever done. He's working with a quarterback that may not be all that great. Jalen Milrow probably wouldn't start on a handful of other teams in the SEC. LSU definitely has the quarterback advantage. But when you look at who is the more complete team, who's able to play complementary football, is Alabama. Now, they are a three-point favorite for a reason but the reason has to be that they know that this probably could be a barn burner because last year's game was a barn burner even with how good Alabama's defense is their secondary has been prone to giving up big plays downfield okay I definitely think that Kool-Aid McKinstry is their best cornerback but outside of him the other guys that they got at defensive back they've given up a handful of big plays even against Tennessee you know, my guy, Joe Milton, he had success throwing the football against this Alabama secondary at times during the first half of this game. He was able to get a couple of big plays here and there. And also, Joe Milton also was able to do a little bit of damage with his legs to a degree. Jalen Daniels, or Jaden Daniels, excuse me, I keep getting the two mixed up. It's crazy. But Jaden Daniels, with how dynamic of a quarterback he is, same thing when it comes to the argument with Jalen Milrow. It's just that Jaden Daniels is going to have to be able to improvise and make things happen against one of the best defenses in college football. Is he going to be able to do that? Is this offensive line going to allow him to have time to get the ball out to these wide receivers and generate those big plays down the field? You see, Alabama's defense is great, but the biggest knock that I have on this Crimson Tide defense is that their secondary gives up way too many big plays to my liking. And I definitely think that that's something that is definitely going to be a reason why LSU possibly could pull off this win despite being on the road in Tuscaloosa. I'm still going to go with the tie to win, though, because LSU doesn't have a defense. If LSU just had a barely below average defense or even an average defense, I would pick them to win this game. But 
They have one of the worst defenses in all of college football. They're 84th in points per game. They can't get off the field in third down. They got one of the worst third down defenses in all of college football. And also one of the worst red zone defenses in all of college football. So you can't get off the field on third down. You can't stop teams from scoring touchdowns in the red zone. If you're an LSU fan, I know you're going to be really upset with this prediction, and you may feel like you got a good chance to two-up Alabama, but you just don't have an all-around better team than what Alabama has. You got a better offense than Alabama, but overall, Alabama just is a more complete team. Texas was able to play a complete game against Bama because they had not just a great offense, but they also had a great defense. And I don't think that LSU's defense, with how bad they played, is going to give Alabama's offense any struggles. Tennessee's defense was really good against Alabama. Tennessee has, believe it or not, one of the best defenses in all of the SEC. You may not believe that, but if you go and you check the statistics and watch how Tennessee's defense has played this year, they've been really physical. They've been able to get after you up front. You got to be able to get after Alabama. If you can't beat Alabama in the trenches, you're not going to be able to win. Texas had big boys in the trenches that could push Alabama around and take advantage of that lackluster offensive line. I don't think LSU is going to be able to do that. I think that Alabama, with how good this defense has been, the fact that they were able to shut down Ole Miss offense, Ole Miss has been hanging 30, 40 points on people with ease. But when they played Alabama, they only put up 10 points. That was Ole Miss' worst performance on offense this whole entire season when they went against this Alabama defense. Alabama didn't allow Tennessee to score a single second-half point when they played. And even though Tennessee's offense this season hasn't been anything close to what it was last year, they still got a really explosive offense. I just think with Alabama being the more well-rounded team, I think that's the reason why they win this game. And I know it's hard to continue to pick Alabama to win games against, you know, teams that have explosive offenses because their offense at times can be a little lethargic, but it's good enough to get the job done and you know that your defense can come and get big stops for you. So give me the tie to win this game 31 to. 20 is my final score prediction for this matchup. You know, Washington and USC haven't been playing any good football as of late. The only difference is that USC not playing their best football has two losses because of it, and they damn near lost to Cal last week. Meanwhile, Washington has been struggling ever since they beat Oregon to beat Arizona State, which was their worst performance of the season, and they damn near lost to Stanford. And I'm looking at Washington, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what the hell happened to this team? Because it's like we're watching two different Washington Huskies teams right now. The Washington team that we saw prior to beating Oregon was lights out, not just on offense, but defensively also. But the defense has kind of went down. Michael Penix, I've noticed that he doesn't start games on fire. You know, it kind of takes him a little bit of time to get going. And going against USC, I don't think that just because Alex Grinch has a terrible defense, you can count out USC in this game because they still have Caleb Williams. Now, I know that Caleb Williams hasn't been playing his best football, 
But it's not really all of his fault. The offensive line hasn't been great. And the defense also hasn't really been giving him too many breathers neither. But want to know something that gives me a lot of confidence that USC's offense is going to be able to match Washington's point for point in this game? The fact that Washington doesn't have a consistent pass rush. And that's really going to hurt them when they're going up against a quarterback like Caleb Williams. Because if you can't get after Caleb Williams like Notre Dame was able to do, like Utah was able to do, you're going to get shredded. Caleb Williams is one of those quarterbacks that you give him all day to throw, and I promise you he's going to have a four or five touchdown performance. Another thing about USC is that their defense, they give up a lot of points, a lot of yards. They're not good in too much anything but one area, and that's their ability to get turnovers. Michael Penix, he hasn't really been playing, you know, mistake-free, careless football as of late. You know, against Arizona State, he had a couple of turnovers. I believe he had an interception against Stanford. This Washington team, and I think they're coming into this USC game playing their worst football at the worst time. And the majority of people out there are picking Washington not just to cover this game, but to win outright. And I kind of want to caution you with that. You know, like one thing about USC that people seem to forget is that they got plenty of firepower to go toe-to-toe with anybody offensively as long as you don't have a great defensive line. Utah was able to just be more physical than USC, and they were able to bully them. Same thing with Notre Dame. They bullied USC. Washington isn't that kind of team. They're a way different team. And you know how the old saying goes, styles make fights. Washington is more of a finesse team. They have the ability to run the football with success, but they just choose not to. They're not really a team that you think about for being physical up front. They're a team that wants to spread you out and just sling that rock downfield, which they definitely should be able to do against, you know, a poverty defense. But let's not act like USC's offense is going to be outmatched against Washington's defense. Like, yeah, Washington has a couple of NFL guys, but when you look at this pass rush, I don't really think that USC's offensive line is going to be in for a tough afternoon against it. And let's not act like Washington's defense is just this elite defense. Their defense isn't better than Utah's or even Oregon State's. This was the same defense that really couldn't stop Oregon for too many times outside of Oregon getting a little bit aggressive on fourth down. Bo Nix had a good performance against Washington's defense. And Caleb Williams, there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to do the same. You're not the same team that Utah and Notre Dame are. And that's why I think people are overlooking USC in this game because you look back at USC's losses to Notre Dame and Utah, they lost the physical teams. If you just can't beat up USC physically and you just can't beat them down up front, they're going to be able to do whatever they want to do to you offensively. Zachariah Branch, this could be a career game for him. He has so much speed. And I don't really know if how you're Washington, how you can prepare for that. They just have so much talent offensively that I don't think that Washington, even if they do win this game, that is going to be by, you know, them covering that three and a half. I definitely think that this is a game that's going to be decided by one point. It's going to come down to whoever gets the ball last. I mean, Kyle damn near put up 50 against USC's defense. But meanwhile, 
when I watched Washington against Arizona State, what, they only put up, what, 15? Washington has not been playing some of their best football. I'm a little bit confused that so many people just have so much confidence to claim that this is just a lock for Washington. Even though USC has two losses and their playoff hopes are all but over, I mean, they still got a lot to play for. They can still ruin your season. They can ruin your college football playoff hopes. And if you're Washington, yeah, you got that win over Oregon. But ever since that game, can you honestly say that you've played like the better team than Oregon since? I mean, Oregon is still consistent, and they still play better defense than you. Yeah, you got some guys up front, but we haven't really been seeing those guys make a lot of big plays over the last couple of weeks. I mean, Stanford was going crazy. Their receivers were going crazy. If Stanford is carving you up through the air, that says a lot about your secondary. And it doesn't matter about injuries or whatever excuse you want to use to justify the poor performance that you had. At the end of the day, you're going against one of the most talented offenses in all of college football when you look at what USC has at the wide receiver position. You see, the only way that you can really shut down the team like USC's offense is if you can just be able to outmatch them up front. And I don't think Washington's defensive line poses a mismatch to the offensive line of USC, even with USC's offensive line not playing at the level that they did last season. USC defensively, though, I mean, damn, you're not good at anything, but you can force turnovers. I think a big key in this game is going to be which defense can get the stops on fourth down, who can get the stops in the red zone, and who can force takeaways and get the ball back to their offense. You see, stops are so important in this game because any team that could get a stop, they potentially could go up by two possessions. And then if it becomes a two-possession game at any point, that puts even more stress on two defenses that really haven't played at a high level, especially USC. I'm not going to disrespect Washington and say that their defense is worse than USC's because USC's defense, it's just like, damn, you might as well let me go out there and go ahead and call the plays for Alex Grinch. I don't think we could do any worse. So if this is a game where, you know, let's say, Washington comes away with a couple of turnovers and they can end up capitalizing off those turnovers. And let's say it's 28-14 or let's say it's 35-24 going into halftime. You feel really good about Washington's chances of being able to win this game. And even though their defense isn't great, you trust Washington's defense a lot more to get a stop and key moments in this game than you do USC. When you go back to that Oregon game, they got big stops on fourth down, even though you can say that maybe Dan Lanning was a little bit too aggressive, not opting to kick the field goal before halftime and having a questionable play call on fourth down late in the fourth quarter, which set Washington up in position to win that game. But outside of that, I mean, USC's defense also is pretty optimistic themselves or opportunist or whatever you want to say, like against Utah. You know, like, their safety, Bullock, he had a pick six. This is a defense that they're not good at stopping anything, but they do have the ability to come away with big turnovers and big moments. And Michael Penix does cough the football up at times, and I trust Caleb Williams way more than I trust Michael Penix. I still think that Caleb Williams is the better quarterback in this game. 
And with Washington's pass rush not really being all that great, I definitely think that this is a matchup where we can see USC pull off the upset, and that's why I'm taking the Trojans to win. I like Washington. Washington, without a doubt, has a better overall team than what USC has. But defensively, I don't know if they're going to be able to play the same style of football that Utah and Notre Dame were able to play because they're just not built like those teams. They don't have the same level of physicality that the Irish have when they beat USC. And plus, USC is playing this game at home. Yeah, Washington is going to be able to match them point for point, but so can USC. I think this game comes down to whoever gets the ball last, and I think it's going to be USC. And to be quite honest with you, like I still think that USC is a pretty good team. I don't care where they're ranked. I don't care the fact that they do got two losses. I think you're a little bit naive to just count out USC. Like They're not a team that's capable of being able to beat a team like Washington or Oregon if they play their best game. They don't need to have a great defense to beat you as long as their offense is humming and you just don't beat them up up front. So give me USC to win this game. I'm going to say the final score is going to be 56 to 50. Final score prediction. I don't really see, I don't really think we're going to see a lick of defense until late in this game. Oregon State is traveling to Boulder to take on the Buffs, man. They are 13 and a half point underdog. And man, ever since Colorado started out 3 0, this team has been free falling. I believe they've lost, what? One out of four of their last couple of games, they got beat up by UCLA. Shadur Sanders got sacked seven times. It's like UCLA's defense was having an all-they-can-sack buffet on Shadur Sanders, and they're going up against another good defensive line. All right, Oregon State has a really good pass rush. They rank 18th in the nation in sacks per game. They also are really good on the offensive line as well. They got a pretty solid defense, a really nice secondary. Now, offensively, DJ Uyunglele, I think that his stats are really deceiving. He has 17 touchdowns and only four interceptions. But anytime I've seen him play against a Power 5 opponent, he has completed less than 60% of his passes. Last week against Arizona State, he was overthrowing wide open wide receivers. He's just really erratic. He's just not really that good. I think he's really overrated. I think that he's getting a little bit too much praise for somebody who just really isn't that great of a quarterback. I think he's a okay college quarterback, but I don't really think he's all that good. And even though Colorado's defense has been a, li a liability for the majority of this season, they played one of their best games last week against UCLA. They forced several first-half turnovers, including two of those coming from Travis Hunter picking off Ethan Garbers. You look at DJ Uyangale, I definitely think he's going to be able to chuck a couple up to Travis Hunter in this game. He doesn't really make the best decisions with the football. I just don't think DJ Uyangale is a great quarterback. And I don't think that Oregon State's offense is just going to function without any flaws and they're just going to go up and down the field on Colorado like how Oregon and USC were able to do I do think that Colorado in this matchup they got a better chance to win this game potentially than what they did against UCLA and that's crazy that's crazy I'm saying that Ethan Garbers is a better quarterback than DJU but he he kind of looked like it 
DJ Uyunglele, like, the dude just isn't really that great. He just leaves a lot of big plays on the field. And anytime you got a quarterback like DJ Uyunglele that struggles with decision-making and making accurate throws from inside of the pocket, it gives a team like Colorado the opportunity to hang in games. If Oregon State is going to win this game and they're going to run through Colorado, it's going to be because they put a lot of emphasis on just running the football. And honestly, if you're Oregon State, you really shouldn't do anything but run the football. You don't really need to throw the football on Colorado all that much. DJ Uyunglele, he shouldn't need to throw the football more than 17, 18 times for you to be able to win this game. Colorado's defensive line has not shown the ability to stop the run at all, okay? Oregon State, they got a really good offensive line with a lot of veteran experience. Colorado, they got a defensive line that outside of Jordan Dominic is simply not that good. Oregon State, if they get past happy, I think that it can keep things close for Colorado. Now, the thing with Colorado is, okay, Deion Sanders publicly called out the offensive line in his post-game press conference after they lost to UCLA and Shadur Sanders was getting thrown around like a rag doll. All right, are we going to see the offensive line improve their performance? Are we going to see some changes made? Is Colorado going to be more than just an air raid offense? Because that's really all this team has been. You got all McCaskill who is a really good running back, and they're not really giving him a lot of opportunities. It's like Colorado just doesn't care about being balanced. If they can find a little bit of balance in this game and they can play some complimentary football, I do think that they can have a little bit of success running the ball on this Oregon State front. But if this just becomes a matchup where they're asking Shadur to sling it 50 times, this game is going to go the same way that it did last week against UCLA. You are going to have the home field advantage, and it is going to be rocking, all right? But Oregon State, man, they're just a well-oiled team up front on both sides, offensive line and defensive line. Colorado's going to have to make some major adjustments to their style of play, and I just don't think that Colorado's style of play fits them going up against a team like Oregon. Colorado, for them to have a chance to be able to win games, they got to go up against teams that either have no offense at all or they got to go up against teams that aren't physical. And Oregon State is one of the more physical teams in the Pac-12 conference, just like UCLA. And Colorado, they got beat down in the second half of that UCLA game. UCLA was pretty much doing whatever they wanted to in the fourth quarter against that Colorado defense. Even though Colorado's defense played a pretty good game, it's just offensively, you need more. You just can't expect Shadur Sanders to just carry you to a win against a team like Oregon State. Hell, Caleb Williams is going to potentially be the first quarterback taken off the board in next year's draft, and even USC can't just overly rely on him to win games. You see, in this conference, you got to be able to play complimentary football. You got to be able to get physical when it involves you being able to get physical. And Oregon State is just a far more physical team than what Colorado is. You see, Colorado, they got receivers that are going to be able to get open. But if Shadur Sanders is going to have enough time to throw them the football, it doesn't matter how good your receivers are if Shadur Sanders drops back in, in 0.3 seconds, he got the guy closed on him from hell, JBL style. It's like people say Shadur Sanders holds on to the ball too long, but I mean, is holding on to the ball in 0.3 seconds too long? 
I mean, like, for most quarterbacks, that's pretty fast. And the play calling kind of has to be a little bit more diverse. All right, there are people who want Colorado to get more of the quick game going in the passing game, but it's kind of hard to get the quick passing game going when teams know your offensive line can't hold up and they're just going to play up on you, take away the underneath stuff, and force you to have to make throws downfield. So Darius Sanders, if he can get a little bit of time in this game to throw the football, there's a good chance that Colorado can pull off this upset. And somebody in the comment section last week said that you said it yourself, JT, before the season that there's not a single team on Colorado's schedule that they can't beat. Yeah, and I meant that. When Shadara Sanders has some damn time to throw the football, Coach Prime, before every game starts, what do they always ask him? Coach Prime, what do you need to do to win? We need to protect two. If we can keep two upright, we should be able to win this game. If Colorado's offensive line can, you know, finally learn how to pass block and these coaches can teach them how to pass block, this game can be close. And I do think that Colorado can cover that 13 and a half point spread. People make it seem like even though Colorado has lost a good amount of games that they haven't really been a great team when it comes to covering when they've been underdogs because it's been the polar opposite. Anytime Colorado has been an underdog outside of when they played Oregon, They've been easy money. They covered against UCLA. They covered against USC. And if you can give Shadara Sanders some time to throw the football, I do think that this game becomes really interesting. The question is, is that going to happen? Is Coach Prime and this coaching staff going to make the necessary adjustments? Because I don't think that Colorado has done, to be honest with you, a great job at really being able to make in-game adjustments. I don't really be seeing any new guys starting on the offensive line. I haven't seen different offensive line combinations. It's just they're just sticking with the same thing. It's not working, and they continue to do it. Sean Lewis only tries to run the football for the first quarter, and then for the other three quarters, he just completely forgets about it. Oregon State, I don't think they cover in this game, but I do think that they're going to win this game, and I think they win it by at least 10 points. I don't think they're going to like carve up Colorado because they're not one of those teams that are built offensively just to shred you. And when you go back and you watch DJ Uyungle play against Arizona, he didn't have a great game. He was leaving a lot of plays on the field. And with him being an inconsistent quarterback, I definitely think that that's going to hurt Oregon State's offense is definitely going to give Colorado some opportunities to hang around with them. If this was a better quarterback, I believe Oregon State probably runs away with this game because they're just so much more physical and so much better up front than what Colorado is. But I do think that Colorado is still going to be able to hang around. Colorado has shown that in most games when they've been underdogs, they've been able to at least cover. So I'm still going to put money on Coach Prime and these boys to cover. I've been winning a lot of money all season long, betting on Colorado to cover and underdog situations and this is going to be another situation where I put my money on coach Prime and these boys to cover but I do think that Oregon State is going to win this game I just don't think that they're going to dominate just because the style of play if this was you know one of those Tennessee kind of offenses where they were going 100 miles per hour they were air raid edge you out spread you out I think they probably win this game pretty convincingly but they don't have that kind of offense you know, they're slow, methodical, and DJ Uyungle just isn't that good. So I think that Colorado can stay around in this game and keep it competitive.
We got the Miami Dolphins taking on the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a big game for the Miami Dolphins. All right. Not just is this game going to have big implications in determining who's going to end up being the front runner to get the number one overall seed in the AFC come playoff time, but the Dolphins have yet to beat a good team this season. All right. Yes, it was impressive that they put 70 points on the Denver Broncos and they were able to beat up on the Carolina Panthers. They beat the New York Giants and they beat the New England Patriots. But after they put 70 on the Denver Broncos, the Buffalo Bills damn near hung 50 on this defense. And then they lost by double digits to the Philadelphia Eagles, 31 to 17. And it just doesn't go to this season The Miami Dolphins have just been one of those teams that under Mike McDaniel, they just aren't really that good of a team anytime they play against elite competition, even dating back to last year. The last time the Dolphins have beaten a team that had a record of above 500 at the end of the season, it was week eight last season against the Detroit Lions. And when they beat the Detroit Lions, they were one and six at the time. So you probably got to go even further back to the last time the Miami Dolphins beat a team that had an actual winning record of above 500. So I don't think that it's me hating on the Dolphins to say that this team can't win big games because they can't, or at least they haven't shown the ability to. And you can go back to last year when they had that stretch, when they had to go out to California and they lost the 49ers, they lost to the Chargers. I've yet to see this team play a, a good team, and they were actually really competitive. Against teams that have a record of 500 or better, Mike McDaniel, he's 3-6. and six. Tua Tagovailoa against good teams, his statistics look way worse than what they do when he's going up against some of the worst teams in the NFL. The Dolphins have a lot to prove in this game. I like the Dolphins. I think that the Dolphins, without a doubt, are going to be a playoff team. But if we're talking about this team being in a Super Bowl discussion, this is a must-win game. You're going up against a Kansas City Chiefs team that lost to the Denver Broncos. Patrick Mahomes is coming off probably the worst game of his NFL career. And you definitely can bet your money that he's definitely going to look to bounce back against that Vic Vangio defense. A Vic Vangio defense that... Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, they carve up every single time they go up against it. Now, the difference in this game for the Miami Dolphins compared to the previous big games that they played in is that you haven't had Jalen Ramsey. You got Jalen Ramsey, and he definitely is a big difference maker. And I think that Jalen Ramsey is still a top three cornerback in the game. And I'm willing to argue and go back and forth with anybody in the comment section who still doesn't think that Jalen Ramsey is one of the top three best cornerbacks in the NFL right now. I'll go back and forth with you all night long. I love me some Jalen Ramsey. The wide receiver position for Kansas City has obviously been a big talking point. Rasheed Rice has now started to emerge as their top option in the passing game outside of Travis Kelsey but really this is an offense that is engineered by Patrick Mahomes Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid and Isaiah Pacheco the Miami Dolphins against the Philadelphia Eagles I felt their defense played a pretty okay game yeah they could have played a little bit better but you know their offense kind of let them down if the Miami Dolphins can find a way to replicate the performance that the Denver Broncos had last week, 
they definitely have a great shot at winning this game, even though Kansas City, their defense is really good. And I think that this is the best defense that Steve Spagnola, I'm not even going to say I think, this is without a doubt the best defense that Steve Spagnola has ever had in all his years being a defensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's going to be really interesting to see how he's going to game plan for the speed of this Dolphins offense. Tyreek Hill, I don't think Tua Tagovailoa should be over him in the MVP conversation. I think that Tyreek Hill is the Miami Dolphins' most valuable player. And I don't say that to slight Tua. I just say that to say just how good Tyreek Hill has been this year. This dude has been a game changer. Then you also got Jalen Waddle that you got to deal with. So there's just, it's so much speed that makes it hard to defend against anytime you go against this Dolphins offense. But we also got to remember that this is the same offense that got shut down by the Buffalo Bills and it got shut down by the Philadelphia Eagles. And I definitely think that we're going to need to see Tua play one of the best games of his career. Tua Tagovailoa in big games doesn't play good. Miami Dolphins fans are really sensitive about Tua, and I understand it. He's your quarterback. You got to get behind him, but we got to stop making it seem like Tua isn't part of the reason why the Dolphins have had these big game struggles. That's why I started out this segment earlier saying that the Dolphins have a lot to prove. If you lose to Kansas City, you're going to be 0-3 this season against three of the best teams in the NFL. You couldn't beat the Bills. You got beat by 20 by Buffalo, you got beat by more than two possessions against the Philadelphia Eagles, and then if you lose the Kansas City Chiefs, what does that show you about the Dolphins? When you think about the Miami Dolphins, right, you think about flash, you think about speed, but what is the one thing that they're missing with this team that is the reason why they're unable to pull off these big games? I think that they need to put a lot more emphasis on running the football. And their offensive line obviously has to play better. Chris Jones is probably going to have a field day against the Dolphins' offensive line. And I know Dolphins fans are going to defend their offensive line play saying injuries this and injuries that. But at the end of the day, everybody's injured. Nobody's healthy at this point of the season. Everybody has either a key guy out. Like Kansas City lost Nick Bolton. He's going to be missing significant time. Everybody's injured during the midway point of the NFL season. You're lucky if you're able to have even an 80% healthy roster. And that's the thing with the Miami Dolphins that hurts them in these games. Their offensive line always comes to bite them in the ass. And I tell you guys this every single week. Football is still a game that's winning loss in the trenches. It doesn't matter if you got all these fast speedster, speedsters at wide receiver and Jalen Waddle and Tyree Kill if you're not having the time for Tua to throw the football to him. And you see, the Dolphins' offense is all about timing. It's all about rhythm. If you can get consistent pressure on Tua and you can get him out of sync with these receivers and you mess up the timing with this offense, the game is kind of over because that's what Tua's game is. He is... A really good quarterback when it comes to throwing with anticipation and working well within the short, intermediate passing game. And he also throws a really nice deep ball when he has the time to do so. But the thing with this Kansas City Chiefs defense is that this defensive line is incredibly underrated. 
Yeah, we know how good Chris Jones is, but they got several other guys on this defensive line who are more than capable of being able to take advantage of a porous Miami Dolphins offensive line. Kansas City, their offense, let's not act like it's just some smooth running machine. All right. Yeah, we know how good Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid are, but this offense has had some wonkers against the Denver Broncos. Oh, my goodness. That's a nightmare scenario. And imagine if the Dolphins defense can replicate that performance in this game. And the Dolphins definitely do have the talent to do so, especially up front. Christian Wilkins, Bradley Chubb, especially with Jalen Ramsey coming back. This Kansas City Chiefs offense, we could definitely see them struggle again. And anytime Kansas City goes up against good teams this year, it's not like their offense has just been operating without any flaws. You know, we saw what the Detroit Lions were able to do to this offense at times. And we obviously saw what, you know, last week, what the Denver Broncos were able to do to this offense when these receivers really can't get going and you're able to get Patrick Mahomes having an off game. Now, of course, the likelihood of Patrick Mahomes having another, another off game is really slim. But against the New York Jets, their defense was able to slow down and contain Kansas City's offense. And when you look at the Chicago Bears, I mean, they got blowed out, but they're just a terrible team. But go back to the week before that, when they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, they only put up 17 in that game. So the Chiefs, when you look at the Miami Dolphins, I think it is fair to say that the Dolphins do have a big game problem, but the Kansas City Chiefs offense, they kind of got a big game problem as well because their offense doesn't look all that great anytime they face a team that kind of has a solid or somewhat decent defense. The Jacksonville Jaguars, I don't think they got a great defense. They got a top 15 defense, all right? And we saw the Jacksonville Jaguars keep that game fairly close. Tua Tagovailoa is really going to have to be able to make plays late in the fourth quarter to give the Dolphins the win. All right, there's no way that you can go around that. Tua has to step up. I haven't seen Tua step up against the Buffalo Bills. I didn't see him step up against the Philadelphia Eagles. All I hear when it comes to Tua Tagovailoa not being able to get it done in big games is excuses. All it's the refs. All it's the offensive line. All it's the injuries. I mean, the dude threw an interception trying to hit Raheem Mostert on a slot fade. Now, of course, you got to give some criticism to Mike McDaniel on that play call him because why is Raheem Mostert at running back running a slot fade against one of the better defenses in the NFL and the Philadelphia Eagles? It's just the Dolphins don't play their best football anytime they play a good team. But Kansas City's defense has played well, and their defense has kind of carried them in games against big teams this year. But they still got Patrick Mahomes, and I do think that Patrick Mahomes really is a big difference maker, especially going against a Vic Vangio-style defense that him and Josh Allen have a lot of success against. That's why I'm taking Kansas City to win. I just don't believe that the Dolphins are still a good enough team that they can beat other teams that are considered to be as good or better than what they are. Yeah, they're 6-2 and two right now. They got one of the best records in the AFC, but... They haven't beaten none of the best teams in the NFL. You got blown out by Buffalo. You got beat pretty handily by the Philadelphia Eagles. And I don't think that this game is going to be as one-sided as those other games have been due to how inconsistent and the struggles that Kansas City has had offensively this year. 
But with how good Steve Spagnola's defense has been playing this year, I think that we could see this Dolphins offense have another lackluster performance. Give me the Kansas City to win. 24-13 is my final score prediction in this game. Now, we got one more thing that we got to discuss. I got to get a drink of water real quick. If you haven't already, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live Monday through Thursday, really Monday through Wednesday around 9.30, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Sometimes we go live Thursday night after the Thursday night football matchups. Just make sure that you got your post notifications turned on. If you didn't know, this is a little bell icon on the right side of the subscribe button. It will alert you every time I upload a new video or every time I go live. A lot of you guys say that you don't get alerted when I upload new content or you miss the live streams because you didn't get notified about it. So go ahead, hit that bell icon if you haven't already and make sure that you have all notifications turned on so you don't miss when we upload new content and when we go live. All right, my lips are heavily chapped right now, but since we only got one segment left, I'm not even finna get up and try to get the chapstick. It's just, fuck it. If people see white shit on my lips, it is what it is. The Seattle Seahawks are taking on the Baltimore Ravens. You have two of the top teams in their respective conferences squaring off. You know, the Seattle Seahawks, right? Let's start off with them. They're five and two. And, you know, they've had some pretty big wins, like, they beat the Detroit Lions. They got a pretty solid win over a Cleveland Browns team that is really good defensively. Even without Deshaun Watson, Cleveland is a really formidable team. And they also beat up on the Cardinals and the Giants. But I look back to their loss against the Cincinnati Bengals. And if I were to ask you why Seattle lost that game against Cincinnati, you're probably going to tell me that the offensive line let Geno Smith down. But what if I told you that Geno Smith has been riding back this year? Because he has. Like, Geno Smith has not looked like the same quarterback this season that he was in 2022. He's been heavily inconsistent with taking care of the football. He's had a turnover in nearly almost about their last couple of games. And against a Baltimore Ravens defense that currently is ranked number one in the NFL, if you're a Seahawks fan, do you trust Geno Smith to lead you to the win in this game? Because you're going up against LaMarvelous. Not Lamar Jackson. LaMarvelous, people. Make sure that you remember that name. Lamar Jackson's new name is LaMarvelous because that's what he's been looking like this season. He's been looking like the black version of Tom Brady. He's been really good operating in the quick passing game. The only reason why Lamar Jackson's statistics aren't better is because at times... These Ravens wide receivers have an issue with the dropsies. But when these receivers are clicking on all cylinders and this team is executing to their peak level, you get the performance that you got against the Detroit Lions. This is the best defense in the NFL statistically. They can get after you. They got a really good pass rush. They're really formidable against the run. Seattle, I think the formula to them winning games is yeah, you need Geno to make plays here and there, but you really need the run game to be functional. And if the run game isn't functional and you put Geno Smith in situations where he has to carry you to a win, 
that may not always result in you being able to end up in the winning side of these ball games, especially against a team like Baltimore. Because Geno Smith, he just is one of those quarterbacks that he just kind of can be a little bit reckless with the football. And his offensive line at times can be a little bit inconsistent like it was against Cincinnati. Cincinnati was really getting after Geno Smith. And the reason why I referenced that Cincinnati game is because they got a really good defense. And you're going against the Ravens who have an even better defense. Now, when we flip sides and we compare or talk about Seattle's defense to the offense of the Baltimore Ravens, Seattle defensively has looked better than what they've have looked in the last couple of years this season. Now, this defense still isn't great, but your defense is more than capable of being able to get a couple of stops in this game, especially with the way Devon Witherspoon has been playing. Devon Witherspoon has been locking down any wide receiver that he's been matched up against. And I think Baltimore's best wide receiver right now has been rookie Zay Flowers, a.k.a. Joystick. And I can't wait to see the matchup between Devon Witherspoon and Joystick because that's going to be some must-see football. Zay Flowers, he is really good getting out, getting off the line of scrimmage. He's been the most consistent wideout that Lamar Jackson has had when it comes to consistently taking, you know, consistently catching the ball and making things happen after the catch. Then you got Mark Andrews that you got to worry about. But I do think from a personnel standpoint, Seattle definitely has the guys to slow down this Baltimore Ravens offense. It really just comes down to execute. Can Seattle's defense execute? And that's really going to be the big thing when it comes to Seattle finding a way to win this game. It really comes down to execution because I believe Seattle is one of the most talented teams in the NFL. They got depth at every single position, receiver, defensive line, linebacker. It really just comes down to Geno Smith being able to execute and take care of the football. I don't know if Kendall Walker is going to have a big game against a really stout Baltimore Ravens defense. And if the Baltimore Ravens can watch these games just like I can, and I can tell you guys how inconsistent Geno Smith has been, and I can tell you that if you slow down the run game and you force Geno Smith to beat you, that's a recipe to the Ravens winning this game. I'm pretty sure the Ravens know the same thing. If you're Geno Smith, you got to come out and you got to play your best game of the season up to this point. The Geno Smith that we saw last year definitely isn't here in 2023, but that doesn't mean that he's bad. doesn't mean that he's cooked. This just means that he needs a little bit more help to help elevate his play. And when you're going up against a team like the Baltimore Ravens, man, like you got to be able to be a superstar. You got to be able to find a way to elevate your team in big moments. And if Geno Smith in these big moments is throwing costly interceptions like how he did against the Cincinnati Bengals, they're going to lose this game against Cincinnati. He had a really bad red zone interception. You can't do that against a team like the Baltimore Ravens. You can't afford mistakes. The best teams in the league can't afford turnovers. The best quarterbacks in the league don't make costly mistakes. Lamar Jackson hasn't really had too many costly turnovers this year. When you go back and you watch that performance against the Pittsburgh Steelers, which people unfairly put on Lamar Jackson, his receivers dropped two touchdowns in that game. You had a drop by Rashad Bateman in the end zone, and you had a 50-yard what would have been touchdown by Nelson Aguilar that got dropped in that game also. When these receivers are playing well, the Ravens offense is damn near unstoppable. But even then, you got to find a way to contain Lamar Jackson. 
which is why Geno Smith has to play well in this game. Lamar Jackson is one of the biggest reasons why the Ravens are in contention for the number one seed in the AFC. There's a reason why Lamar Jackson has one of the best winning percentages amongst starting quarterbacks. It's because of just how dynamic he is at the quarterback position. Lamar Jackson is one of those quarterbacks that you can say, go win us the game. Go carry us to the win. Can you say that about Geno Smith? I would like to say that you can, but is he consistent enough to do it? And what Geno Smith are we going to get? Are we going to get the Geno Smith that can give you a 24 out of 31 passing performance for three touchdowns and no interceptions? Or are we going to see a Geno Smith that gives you two touchdowns and two costly interceptions? Lamar Jackson, he's not going to put the Ravens in a situation to lose this game. He's really hard to stop in third down situations. Even when you got these receivers covered, it doesn't matter. Lamar Jackson can get out the pocket, buy time for guys to get open, or like we all know, he can take it to the house damn near any time he runs the football. If Geno Smith doesn't step up and have a big time performance in this game, I don't think Seattle's going to win. And that's why I'm going to take the Ravens to win because I love Geno Smith. He was a great story, but maybe last year kind of just was a one-off season. And I'm not saying that Geno Smith is this bad quarterback all of a sudden, but all I'm saying is that Geno Smith went from damn near being a fringe top 10 quarterback to now being a middle of the pack quarterback this year. You can't trust him to take care of the football. He's too streaky and he makes too many costly boneheaded decisions with the game on the line. You can't be turning the football over in the red zone. Seattle, the formula to win, the formula to them pulling off this upset is that they got to be able to play complimentary football. And I don't think they're going to be able to do that. The Ravens, they are style against the run. And if they put Seattle in a situation where they got to win this game by throwing the football with Geno Smith, I like Baltimore's chances. We know that Seattle has some really good receivers, JSN, DK Metcalf, and Tyler Lockett. But Geno Smith, his decision-making has been really questionable at times. And I think it's going to cost Seattle in this game. That's why I'm taking Baltimore to win. This is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. Before you leave out, make sure that you smash that like button, subscribe to the channel. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, give us a five-star review on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. And I will see you guys tomorrow with another episode of the JT Sports Podcast.